two of Monsters and Crime, where I talk about true crime exactly how you want me to, in the exact cadence and speech pattern, as if I'm human. Slow and fast. A lot of pauses like this make it seem really important. It's almost like ASMR. Hey, hi. Are you trying to fall asleep right now? Do you like the sound of zippers? I really have no fucking idea what I'm talking about. So let's get into some stuff. Um, I Today's my birthday, so I went to dinner and I had a drink. I came home and had a couple drinks, uh, so I'm feeling good tonight. Um, what else? I started dance. Uh, I've gone a few times. I've missed a couple times, but uh, hip hop and tap is what I'm doing this year. So TV, what have I been watching? I have been watching Power here and there. Um, I let's see. Uh, I've had a few drinks, so I cannot really remember things right now. Um, so we're going to move on. Um, I don't have, like, if I didn't write it on this piece of paper, I probably am not going to remember to include it in this episode because I, my brain is just not functioning right. I'm trying to do this late. Um, I kind of rushed to write it and I'm just going to wing it and we'll see how it goes. Uh, so without anything else that I really have to say, I guess I'll get right into it. Um, so we've got another California one this week. Um, I think last episode I did uh, Los Angeles area, the Zanku chicken murders. Um, so tonight I'm doing the Chowchilla bus kidnapping of 1976. Um, there's actually a reel that you can look up on YouTube. Uh, you can watch the news footage as this story uh, plays out on the news someone has compiled all of it and this is horrific and insane and i'm so excited about this and um just because it's such a crazy story there's so many levels to it and it's just fucked up but so the majority of this uh, information and the shape of this story is from an episode of 48 Hours Live to Tell, uh, where they interviewed now-grown children who were on the bus. Uh, they're all just screaming. Okay, no. But it's kind of amazing, uh, this episode, um, or... Yeah, this episode of 48 Hours. So aside from 48 Hours, um, Live to Tell, which did an absolutely amazing and incredibly thorough job, uh, and all of these people got to tell their own story, which is the best way to experience true crime. Um, 
you tell me what happened to you. That's all I care about. Um, but the other sources were CNN, CBS News, uh, and, and Wikipedia. So here we go. Um, it starts July 15th, 1976. It's around 4 o'clock in uh, Chowchilla, California. And the Dairyland Elementary School's bus driver, Ed Ray, is dropping kids off after their summer school field trip that day. Uh, Chowchilla is about 50 miles north of Fresno, so centrally California. Uh, it's very central, but it's that part of California, like it's below Modesto, it's above Fresno, it's all farmland. Um, so uh, Dairyland Elementary School, like it's all cows. There's rolling hills with oak trees and big cow pastures. Um, so the people in 48 Hours live to tell you and describe it um, as Chowchilla had less than 5,000 people living in it. It was a t tiny cow town, as one of the guys describes it. Um, people did not lock their doors at night. Like, they couldn't even imagine why they would have to. So it was kind of out in the middle of nowhere. It's central, central California. And people in central California, they have accents like they're from the south. Um, it's really quite funny. Um, but it's very agricultural and they're there for generations with the same ranch like families are. So... Ed Ray, the bus driver. Um, so now these kids, their age range is from five years old to 14 years old. Um, this is a summer school, right? So it's just a group of kids that are doing stuff while their parents are at work. Um, and on this day field trip, um, it was to the town swimming pool. And it was just at the Chowchilla Fair Fairgrounds. So in town. Um, so all this news footage looks like it's been shot at like golden hour, but it's just what it looks like back then. Um, so, so there's one little girl who, uh, goes through this whole experience wearing her bathing suit. So it's kind of that thing, like they left the pool and they got on the bus, like, get out, you gotta get out or you're gonna get in trouble, Jennifer. Um, so they just like ran to their bus in their swimsuits. It was a boiling hot day, um, central California in July. Um, so the kids talk about how like they remember riding the bus. They loved Ed and they called him Edward. Um, he'd been the bus driver in that town for 26 years. So... Ed is just beginning the route home. Uh, he's dropped off a couple of kids already. It's just at the beginning of the drop-off route. And um, he approaches a T-stop intersection. And there he sees a broken down white van that's blocking the intersection. So right now at this point, there's 26 kids on the bus, 27 people total, uh, including Ed. So Ed Ray has, um, lived almost his entire 
life in Chowchilla. He's been the school bus driver, like I said, for the past 26 years. He knows everyone in town as well as he knows these country roads that make up his daily route. Okay, so a little note from the editor. That's me. Uh, I started recording last night. Uh, I was on a jitsi with my friends for my birthday and I just couldn't do it so I decided not to record last night but uh, I think I'm going to keep the little part that I did record uh, just because I was super drunk and it might be laughable later I have not heard it yet um, <clears throat> but I'm just going to continue from where I left off last night and I'm uh, I'm sober today so I'm doing this episode without drinking uh, with the exception of the first couple minutes there. Um, <clears throat> so little note from the editor it might sound different at the beginning than it does here on out. Um, so when he sees this white van blocking the intersection, he doesn't think twice about pulling right up uh, and like opening the bus door to see which of his neighbors might need help. That's just the kind of town it was and the kind of guy he was. So it's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. So it's not like, oh, strangers, like that's not anyone's first thought. Um, and I'm telling you, this footage from 1976 it looks like it's the turn of the century. It's so old looking. Um, and if your car broke down in the middle of the afternoon on a July day in Chowchilla, you would be boiled to death by the sun. Okay, that's how hot it was. Um, so Ed pulls right up and he opens those doors to see what's going on and to see who needs help. And as he does... Two men climb onto the bus wearing pantyhose pulled over their head, like bank robber style, um, which... That fucking phone. All right, let's keep going. So um, super scary uh, pantyhose over the head, especially if you're a kid. Like, that's going to be so scary. And one is holding a sawed-off shotgun at Ed and tells him to get in, um, get to the back of the bus. Then that masked man turns the gun onto the kids as the second man gets into the driver's seat and begins to drive. And then a third man is following in the white van that they pretended was broken down. So with Ed and all the kids on board, um, these three masked men have just hijacked a school bus full of children. Um, one of those kids is nine-year-old Jennifer Brown, who is in this episode of 48 Hours Live to Tell. And it's one of those things where they keep showing pictures of her at nine years old uh, because there's so many pictures of these kids. And she looks like the face is exactly the same. And she has this kind of like... Um, so she's the one who says... When Ed walks to the back of the bus, um, he says to all the kids, really harsh, just be quiet, sit down, and do what they say. And she had never heard him talk to the kids 
like that before ever. So she knew like that's how she knew that something was really wrong. Um, so these hijackers take off down a country road um, and they eventually drive down into a dry riverbed in the Berenda Slough, which is seven miles outside of town. And basically they drive down into this area and there's um, like you can see pictures. Um, there's this slough and it had all these trees and bamboo that were like double high like a normal school bus. So um, a slough, if you don't know, is like a riverbed. I think it's like when they make a riverbed cement. So they make sure that like the water, like uh, runoff can go. It's, it's, it's not just a river, it's like the runoff water, whatever. But hey, all you slough heads out there, you slewerinos, I would love to hear how wrong I am. So please educate me because I don't feel like it. Uh, so the weird thing is because these bamboo trees are so high, like they drive this bus in and it fits perfectly. Like you can't see it at all. It's completely concealed, hidden. Um, so they park the bus and the third driver from the white van, um, he now backed a second van that's green up to the bus doors and he opens the rear door uh, the rear doors of the van and that reveals an interior of a van that's been reinforced with wood paneling and all the windows have been blacked out and there's no ventilation that's been added so they customized the inside of this van so that no one can see in or out and basically it's like a little cell and um, so they tell the kids to jump from the bus into the back of the van so no footprints get on the ground. Um, so anyone who's looking can't see that anyone has been there. Um, so at gunpoint, Ed and all the kids have to jump from the bus to the van. Um, they fill up one van, uh, they drive it away, they pull another one up, and the rest of the kids have to do the same thing into the second van. And I do believe that Ed was in the second van. Um, and uh, so six-year-old Larry Park, he's six when this happened. He's obviously an adult when he's telling this story now. Um, he says that he walked toward the man holding the shotgun um, and the barrels started looking like they were getting so big that they were going to swallow him up. He's six years old. He's just a baby. Like, I have a six-year-old, and I can just imagine that. It's terrifying. So nine-year-old Jennifer, um, she isn't in the first van. She gets put into the second van, and she gets separated from her 10 year old brother Jeff and that's when she starts to get really scared she starts telling her friends like I want Jeff and none of the kids know what's going on like it couldn't be more frightening or more like they're getting loaded from their bus onto the back of a dark van they're just in pitch black and they're jammed in there, like completely packed in there. I mean, it's 26 kids 
and an adult um, packed between two vans. So it's they're just packed in there. So meanwhile, Jennifer and Jeff's mom, Joan, uh, Joan Brown, she comes home from work at um, to what normally would be a house full of kids waiting for her to get home from work. And instead, as she says it, there's no peanut butter on the counter. There's no chairs out. They just weren't there. So because it's the 70s, um, they wait a little bit to see and, um, you know, to see what's going on. And it's just that thing where it seems so bizarre now to wait but like this was the era where your parents would be like in the summertime it'd be like go outside until the street lights come on like go play don't come home until you know when the street lights come on time to come home like there were you know no cell phones kids were very self-regulating um sometimes you'd just go to your friend's house for dinner and like they might be mad at you but not worried like like i said no cell phones there was no helicopter parenting this was like free range children back then um so after a couple of hours parents start calling each other and they're realizing that almost none of the kids from summer school made it home that day only those kids that got dropped off right at the beginning so it takes about almost two hours um, and then the parents call the police. But two hours in the 70s is like a modern day, like almost immediately. So stop judging. Um, so the police and parents go out together and they retrace the bus route, but there's no sign of any kids. And it isn't until police start to search by air that they spot the bus in the slough hidden in the bamboo. Um, so Madera County Sheriff Ed Bates and his deputies, they rush to the scene, um, but the bus is abandoned. There's no footprints on the ground and they don't really know what's happened. They just have this bus with no footprints, but they are able to track the van's tire marks um, and they're clear, like the tire marks are clear. So, um, they, they make it clear what happened based on those tire marks that someone pulled up those vans. So now they know that basically all those kids that were on the bus have been loaded into another vehicle that they don't know what it is, but they've been transported somewhere. So Sheriff Bates calls governor Jerry Brown and asks for help, um, from the FBI immediately. Thank God. So 30 FBI agents are called in to assist the investigation. And meanwhile, Ed and the kids are being driven into jam, uh, you know, in jam packed vans. The windows are blacked out. There's no ventilation and they can't see where they're going because, you know, blacked out. It's a brutally hot July night at this point. Again, no ventilation. There's no food or water. They don't let anyone take bathroom breaks. And they drive for almost 12 hours. So you can imagine there's kids that 
you know, throw up from the motion sickness of not being able to see out and it's bumpy country roads. Um, I would imagine after 12 hours, some of these kids probably had some potty accidents as well. Um, there's of course kids crying, there's lots of crying and, um, the older kids are trying to keep everybody like keep kids from crying. So they actually start singing the hits of the day. So they all start singing Boogie Nights together. They sing Love Will Keep Us Together. Um, So 12 fucking hours of being in the back of a van. Mayhem. I drove 15 minutes yesterday and I almost threw up. I mean, all right. Uh, So little kids, um, they're scared. They're trying to comfort each other. And at one point, the older kids have everybody sing, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. But they change the lyrics to, if you're sad and you know it, which I love because they're not being creepy. Like nothing's happening. Let's just keep singing. You know, the way the song is written. No, no, no. They're all freaking out. So let's sing this song. Um, That could be our new COVID song or quarantine song if we have to do that again. Um, Look, if you're sad and you know it, clap your hands. Okay. You might as well. Um, So finally, around 3.30 in the morning, this van comes to a stop and Uh, It's now Friday, July 16th. It's early in the morning uh, and one of the van's back doors opens and uh, the masked men yank Ed out first and then they shut the door. And then the kids just sit there waiting. Minutes pass. They don't know what's going on. Uh, Ed's gone. And then all of a sudden the door opens again And one of the men reaches in and just grabs the nearest kid to the door. And they do this, um, like this is how they unload both of the vans. So there's little kids just sitting there waiting. They don't know if people are getting taken out and killed. They don't know anything. They're just sitting there waiting to see what's going on, waiting to see what's happened, what's going to happen. Um... And the idea of that is just horrifying. And there's a really sad moment. Um, Okay, so let me just say this first. There's the oldest boy is this 14-year-old boy named Mike Marshall. And he's the last kid in the van with a five-year-old girl. And he doesn't want to send her out by herself and they're making them come out one by one. So he has to literally like pry her hands off of his arm so that they can get out, um, so he can get out. And he talks about how horrifying a decision it was because he was like, I can't send her out there alone. Like I have to go out there before her. But then the five-year-old is left in the van by herself. But he does make the decision to go out before her. Um, So when they do lead the kids out, um, 
they realize that they get walked from the van over to basically what looks like a, excuse me, a ladder going into a hole in the ground. So they're out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, It's kind of sandy. It's like middle of the night, pitch black. And Jennifer Brown says that when she came up on the ladder, um, she remembers thinking to herself like, oh, they're sending us to hell. So then they go down the ladder. Uh, They realize they're in an underground bunker and all of the kids and Ed have been loaded down there. Um, So every kid that gets down the ladder, um, they realize like no one's been taken off and killed. Everybody's there. Everybody's accounted for. So they're all like happy and, you know, like all reunited. They're all together again. The problem is, though, it's pitch black down there. They can't see a thing, um, but their eyes adjust and they realize that there's a table that's got some uh, jugs of water on it and some food. And then there's these kind of like slapped together kind of toilets that are built in these boxes that are like where the wheel wells are. Um, It's just a hole that they built so people could have somewhere to go. But the good thing is they can hear fans spinning, so they know there is some sort of planned ventilation. Um, It's like the prequel to Saw. Like if Saw was 26 kids, it's just so awful. So basically, once all the kids and Ed are down inside inside um the kidnappers throw down a roll of toilet paper they pull up the ladder and they say we'll be back for you um then they cover the opening with what everyone believes to be a manhole cover because they say it sounds like one it's really heavy um so now this is the horrifying part so they're down there The manhole cover closes, they're standing in the dark, and they hear material like being poured on top of whatever they're in, and they realize that they're being buried alive. I just can't imagine. So back in Chinchilla, nope, not Chinchilla, fucking Chowchilla, I've wanted to call it Chinchilla so many times, um but it's Chowchilla. So the parents are gathered uh, at command posts that are set up at the fire station. And of course, the whole town is worried sick. Everyone knows about it. Everyone's trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, The police are trying to like formulate how anyone could kidnap 26 school children. Like who would do it, let alone why they would do it. They're just baffled by all of it. And, um, of course, the story makes the national news. So that night, Walter Cronkite, um, I don't know if it was in his opening or whatever, but there's a part where he goes, 26 school children and their bus driver have vanished. Um, you know, anguished parents, President Ford and hundreds of police are asking the question, where are the children? So it's declared to be one of the biggest kidnappings in U.S. history, 
but no one's heard from the kidnappers or has any idea who they might be. So they don't understand what's going on. Like you'd hope it would be a ransom situation so you could like pay and get your kid back, but that's not what's happening either. So a lot of confusion there. Um, everyone's just holding their breath waiting, but then calls pour in to the Chowchilla Police Department from all around the world. There's well-wishers, reporters. I mean, this is like, like it's blowing up. So 12 hours go by. People are just waiting for word in Chowchilla while down in the hole, as the kids come to call it, um, things go from bad to worse. They uh, run out of food. They have a little bit of water left and the fans that they could hear that were providing ventilation have stopped. So now this is kind of fascinating. Um, and I kind of love this kid. Um, like, I love this kid, whoever he is, because he doesn't get named. But there's, so they, they basically, okay, there's blocks that are on the ground, like these four by four pillars. Um, so there's four by four pillars kind of like standing around like in each corner of this box that they're in. And it's basically holding up, like it looks like it's holding up the ceiling, kind of like they're bracing the sides of it and holding the ceiling up. So one of the boys starts kicking at these blocks and just out of like pure fury and fear and you know everything and with every kick he moves the blocks and when the blocks move uh that means like the uh, beam is moving and the ceiling starts to cave in a little bit and the walls of the box that they're in start to bow inwards and dust and dirt start streaming in. So everyone's a little terrified that the ceiling is going to collapse. But Ed and the other kids, um, the older kids, they get together and they decide together, like, if we're going to die, we're going to die trying to get out of here. So Ed and the oldest boy, Mike Marshall, they decide they're going to stack up these mattresses that they have laid around, like all along the outside that the kids have just been laying on. So they stack them up so Mike can climb up them and reach the hatch from the top. So they get up to the manhole cover, but when Mike gets up there, he tries to push it and it's like... It's so heavy, he can barely push it. So he basically says, he talks about it, and he's like, um, he's got like this classic like rancher look, like on the show, The 48 Hours. He's got like his cowboy shirt on and his hat and his whole thing, and he's like, I'm giving it everything I got. And the kids are cheering me up. Come on, Mike, you can do it. You can do it. And all of a sudden, they say it moved. It moved. So this cover that he's pushing against, like he's able to move it to the side a little bit. So there's a hole about a half a foot wide. 
And basically, he has to climb up through that hole and figure out what's up there. Like, the guys could be standing out there with the guns. They don't know what's up there, but they're like, we have to get out of here because the ventilation and there's no food and no water. So Mike, at 14 years old, is like, I'll go up there. So he gets up out of the hole and he realizes he's standing in a little box and the box has dirt in it and it has uh, two truck batteries that were on the manhole cover which is why it was so heavy but once they started moving it they knocked the batteries off and they knocked this dirt off so then He's in this box and he just starts beating on the side of the box and starts to realize it's just this fabricated wooden box that was covering the hole. So he beats his way out of the box and like this is some eye of the tiger fucking parkour extreme fucking sports with little kids, medium kids and big kids. And then Ed himself, who's this ghoul town bus driver. Um, If you want to picture Ed, um, if you've watched Bob's Burgers and you know who Teddy is, that's exactly what he looks like. Like, totally looks like him, just without the beanie. Um, So Mike is like punching these wooden walls and he breaks through. And then Larry Park, the six-year-old, he describes seeing Mike punch his way, uh, like punch and this uh, like ray of sunshine came down into the box, down into the hole. And he says, looking up, the dirt was falling through the hole and the sunshine made it glimmer and it looked like shooting stars to him. And all of a sudden they were like, we're out. Hallelujah. So this is the craziest story I've ever fucking heard. Like, and it just gets crazier. So Mike steps out first um, outside the box to make sure that the coast is clear. He doesn't see anyone. Um, They see hills and trees and it's all kind of just like looks the same. So he and Ed help get all the kids out of the hole and by the time they get out, it's 8 p.m. on the 16th of July. So they've been in captivity for 16 hours. And when Jennifer, the nine-year-old, uh, gets outside, she looks around and looks back at where they were and said it just looks like a sand dune, like a, like a little rectangle. But other than that, there was nothing around. She said uh, if they would have stayed down there, like no one would have ever known that they were down there. So in the distance, they hear engine sounds and whirring and metal. And they don't know if that's where their captors are or what, but they start walking towards the sound. And when they get up to it, they realize it's a quarry. So it's all of those machines, like quarry machines, those big quarriers. <laughs> I don't know what they're called. Uh, so the, these guys, they're all in hard hats. Um, so imagine you're working the night shift at the quarry. 
you turn around and there's 26 kids that look like, I mean, like when you see pictures of these kids, it's unbelievable. Like they're a mess. Um, so they walk up to the quarriers and Ed said, um, we're from Chowchilla and we're lost. But of course the dudes had heard the story. They knew who they were. It was a big story. So, um, at this point, uh, even though they drove for 12 hours, they were in Livermore, California, which is just a couple of hours away. So the dudes just drove around to confuse people and like let the time pass. Um, so they were basically 100 miles northwest of Chowchilla. Uh, so the police are called, obviously, and they get there and they just start taking pictures of the kids and... Um, in the 48 hours, they just start showing kids that are like wide-eyed, kind of dirty, and they have like stuff on their face, and they look like they're all cried out, and I'm sure they were, um, and they load them into a bus. Oh, come on, guys. All right, listen to this shit. This is so 70s. The 70s were so pro-trauma, like, we gotta, like, if we're here, let's double down on this trauma. So they get these kids on the bus and take them to the Santa Rita Rehab Center, which is a local jail, and Jennifer talks about uh, driving onto the grounds and being like, uh-oh, I think we're in trouble, but basically, once they get there, it's great because they get inside and it's just a classroom now. Like it was just a spot nearby that they could get them all into one place and get the situation contained so they could interview everyone to see what's going on. Um, so the kids are let into the classroom. They're given pop and apples. They're also given jumpsuits from the jail, like adult jumpsuits um, to change into. So some had to roll the arms and pant legs up, but some let them like flap around. So when you see pictures, these kids are so happy to be there, like so happy in these jumpsuits. Um, there's two female officers holding the little ones. Like they were like, they're all safe and all together, just happy. So doctors arrive and check everyone out and they make sure that no one's hurt or dehydrated. Um, luckily, everyone's okay physically. Uh, it's incredible that no one's hurt. And I just, I feel like they probably were dehydrated to some degree because it, again, it was a hot summer day, so much crying and so little water but everyone is fine. And um, the police question Ed and the kids for four hours before finally putting them on a Greyhound. Two buses after this. Two buses. Stop it. They didn't know. Like, when doctors were barbers and when you had a fever and they're like, just bleed them. Like, I don't know. 
The pictures of these kids in the white jail suits are just the cutest, though. So now they're all stoked and they're fine. They get a police escort while they're on this Greyhound bus back to Chowchilla. Um, they arrive at four in the morning and the bus pulls in. And as the kids get off, they're escorted by the police through a bunch of reporters Um you see Mike Marshall, the oldest. He's so cute. He's such a 70s cute little boy, like a young Matt Dillon spectrum kind of cute. Um, probably Italian, a Hispanic, or of Portuguese descent, something like that. Just the cutest. And... Um, one of the reporters yells, hi, Mike, what was the pit like? So like all these kids that know none of these people and these people know all of them. And when Ed Ray steps off the bus, he's met with a round of cheers and applause. So that's cool. Um, the investigators, they return to the burial site at the rock quarry and they dig up a moving truck that has been buried like in this big open field at the rock quarry. That's one of the weirdest parts. Um, like it's a moving truck from like 1965. So it's got a big round wheel wells and the trailer is sort of like separated from the back um so the work that it took to bury a truck that big and plan everything out it must have taken weeks if not months um so investigators immediately surmise that they must have had access to the quarry somehow so this is the part where it flips over because it's so sinister. It's so scary. Like, again, what is this? Saw? Um, so now we're going to get into the slapstick insanity aspect of this story because it boggles the mind. Um, so, of course, they go, well... I wonder if it's someone that has a connection to the quarry. Like, what about the quarry owner? Like, what about his son? So, 24-year-old uh, Fred Newhall Woods, who has a criminal record just two years before, him and two of his buddies, brothers James and Richard Schoenfeld, um, were all arrested together for Grand Theft Auto. And... Uh, James and Fred worked together selling used cars, and they were arrested teaming up with Richard, stealing one, but they all got away with it, never serving jail time. Uh, they just got fines and probation because all of them were from rich white families. Um, so it really only took like one day, like two hours really to figure this out and the energy and time that it took to bury a full-size moving truck and trailer like it's a quarry inside job so authorities review the security footage and they find the three had spent months digging a massive hole at the quarry 
and security guards do confirm the identity of Fred Woods. So please, they go to Fred's dad's estate. Um, like these motherfuckers are rich, like rich, like fucking Fred Flintstone shit. I don't know if they were rich, but you know, the rocks, the Fred, forget about it. So they get to the dad's estate and there they find a shotgun that was found in the kidnapping. Uh, they find papers with the kidnapper's plan. They actually show the police footage. Um, and they show this piece of bind, like a piece of binder paper. It's like out of an old box. And it just has in all caps, the word plan at the top. Like the fucking fact that they're so stupid and did this so poorly and so strangely, um, the ransom note was never delivered. So there was a ransom note. It was never delivered, though. And it demanded $5 million for the exchange of the kids, but no one ever received it. So um, arrest warrants were issued for the three men. And Richard actually turns himself in on July 23rd. Um, just eight days after the kidnapping, but the other two take off in different directions. So James zigzags all over the Western United States, and Fred tries to go up to Canada. Um, and two weeks after the kidnapping, James is apprehended on July 29th, and Fred is caught trying to go over the border in British Columbia the same night. Um, like, they don't want you, man. Don't worry about it. And they don't want us to this day still. So don't try that. Um, but during their interrogations, the kidnappers reveal that they've been plotting this crime for a year and a half. Um, what they were supposed to do was after they had kidnapped the bus full of kids, they were supposed to call the Chowchilla Police Department and demand ransom and say, we're sending you the note. But the story had already broken worldwide. So when they tried, they couldn't get through. The phone lines were all busy. So they fucked up there. Um, so they decided they were going to wait it out. So they were going to go take a nap. And when they woke up, they turned on the news. And what do they see? They see Ed and all of the kids had escaped. Listen, either meth or really shitty weed were involved. Maybe both. Maybe they're just smoking stems and seeds. I don't know. But these are some dumb motherfuckers. Um, and when asked for a motive, James Shunfield explained, despite being wealthy, all three men were in debt, of course. And he says, we needed multiple victims to get multiple millions. And we picked children because children are precious. The state would be willing to pay ransom for them and they don't fight back. So uh, these guys bungled their plans so badly 
that they had no choice but to plead guilty to 27 counts of kidnapping for ransom and robbery in July of 1977. And they're also charged with eight counts of bodily harm that some of the kids sustained, but their lawyers advised them that they're facing life in prison no matter what. And if they're found guilty of the charges of bodily harm, they'll have no chance for parole. So the men plead not guilty to the bodily harm charges. Um, Many of these kids, including Jennifer and Michael, testify against these men in court. Um, I tell you, there is video of this little girl, this nine-year-old Jennifer, who talks about it and they have all of the kids like retell the story on tape afterwards like for themselves to process the story um so they have these tapes of these children telling what happened on this 48 hours it's really amazingly done um so basically they talk about the horrible conditions of the whole and um, the chronic nightmares and PTSD that they now suffer from. Um, But their testimonies lead to a guilty verdict on the bodily harm charges. And on February 17th, 1978, Fred Wood, was that his name? Fred Wood or Woods? I don't remember. And James and Richard Schoenfeld are all sentenced to live in prison uh, without the, nope, not live in prison, to life in prison. I guess they're living in prison, but it, it's, it, the sentence was life in prison, uh, without the possibility of parole. See, even without drinking, I still mess up. So, hmm, interesting. I guess I'm just human. Um, So five weeks after the kidnapping, Ed Ray and all 26 kids get taken on a trip to Disneyland. And then on August 22nd of the same year, um, Chowchilla celebrated their first Ed Ray and Children's Day, uh, complete with a parade down the uh, town's main street, honoring the 27 brave survivors. Um, But of course, the kids are traumatized by the experience. Um, some suffer panic attacks. Almost all have recurring nightmares that haunt them and their families. So it's really tough. Like they went through something horrible and to look at it from the other side, like to come out of that pit and be like, what the fuck is one thing, but to be down it when you're six years old and you can't understand like all you want is your mom and you're just stuck somewhere it's just a nightmare so in 1980 um four years after the kidnapping um fred james and richard all appeal the bodily harm charges and their lawyers argue that the cuts and bruises on the children are not enough to warrant the official legal charge of bodily harm and they win this argument so the bodily harm charges are reversed and now they're all eligible for parole 
So two years later in 1982, the parole hearings begin and all of the survivors get dragged back into court to further testify to keep their kidnappers behind bars. Um, all told, um, the survivors of the Chowchilla bus kidnapping have had to endure 60 parole hearings. Six zero. That is additional trauma to the trauma they already fucking endured. And that's just not fair. I mean, especially because they were children, young children. So in this period of time, after all of this time has passed, um, Larry Park, in his own words, has become an angry child. um, And it's beyond justified. Um, His rage has led to his parents to put him in a juvenile facility when he was 15 to try and rehabilitate his behavior, but it doesn't work. Um, and by the time Larry's 21, he's using meth, crack, and other drugs recklessly. And this is sadly what happened to a lot of these kids. Um, Mike Marshall, the 14 year old said that when he was a kid, he could see all the years ahead of him, but after he could not see tomorrow. So He begins drinking excessively when he's 18 years old, and he does it until he's 48. Uh, But finally, he finds the strength to treat his alcoholism. But I mean, 30 years, it's, it's 30 years of being in the bottle because of this trauma and what it did to him. Uh, And Jennifer Brown, she's also haunted by nightmares and PTSD for years. Um, But today she's married and she says she's worked through her struggles with the help of her family and her church family. So she has a lot of support there. Um, It's just, there's this really amazing moment where they have footage of this reporter when she went back to testify like there's a reporter that asks her Jennifer um she's just this little girl and the reporter says why do you think they did this and she says "Mm, I don't know they didn't get enough love and like says it like super like with a super big smile on her face and um she's actually she actually said that she was chewing some gum uh in court or before court and she had to spit it out before she went up to testify because she was afraid that she would spit her gum at her kidnappers so just a freaking cute little girl so uh in june of 2012 36 years after the kidnapping richard shunfeld is paroled and his brother james followed Three years later in 2015. Um, many of the now grown children and their families are upset that the bodily harm charge was reversed and that parole was a possibility for them, understandably. Um, but there is a notable exception. So after years of suffering and substance abuse, uh, Larry Park finally realized that his resentment for his kidnappers was killing him, literally. 
So he decides to ask to meet with the Shunfield brothers who had recently gotten out of prison um, so that he can forgive them. And they agree. And he says, it changed my life. Something washed over me and there was a peace I had never known and I knew everything would be okay. And now Larry is sober and he owns his own handyman business and he sometimes volunteers as a pastor at his local church. Um, Fred Wood, he still remains behind bars. Police say that he was the mastermind behind it all. Like a true sociopath that broke the Schoenfeld brothers into his plan. And today still shows no remorse for his actions at all. Um, his last parole hearing was October 2019, where he was denied parole for the 19th time. And his next parole hearing is set for 2024. Um, so after the kidnapping, Ed Ray goes back to driving a school bus and he does it for 12 more years and he retires in 1988. Um, and on May 17th, 2012, Ed Ray passes away from natural causes at the age of 91. Um, and the town of Chowchilla still continues to celebrate Ed Ray and Children's Day every February 26th in honor of these guys. Um, and in 2016, the survivors of the Chowchilla bus kidnapping file a lawsuit against the three kidnappers demanding monetary, monetary compensation for the horrors that they experienced. And they do actually wind up receiving a settlement, but the exact amount is never publicly disclosed. But one survivor does say that um, the amount is enough for some serious therapy but not enough to buy a house, which is sad. I mean, um, but what do you do? Um, and that's a horrifying story of the Chowchilla school bus kidnapping. Like I said, layers upon layers. It just goes deep. Um, very fucked up story. Um, that's all I have. Um, so as always, thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting. Um, if you'd like to email, it is of monsters and crime at gmail.com. Um, if you want to become a patron, it is www.patreon.com slash of monsters and crime. And, until next time, goodbye.